it's time for us to open up God's word. And so we are going to be reading together today from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. If you could turn there, and I will read aloud while you follow along, and uh, we'll hear from the Lord today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 through 16. Now, anytime that we jump into a text of the Bible and there is that fun little word, rather, you need to go back a little bit. And so you might be asking yourself, why are we jumping into the middle of a context? Because I'm up here, and so I get to make that decision, but I will seek to faithfully guard the context of this text so that we can make sure that we are ministering it according to what God intends and not what man thinks. So when we come to this text, we have to start thinking rather than what. So I would like to set the context for the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is an extraordinarily short and practical book. It is typically, by theologians, divided into two sections. One shows the beauty of doctrine, of what is true because of Christ Jesus for the church and those who are members of it. The first three chapters of Ephesians is telling us what is true according to what Christ Jesus has done and what that means then for the church and the members of it. And then the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, tell us why doctrine is practical. It tells us the so what. Now what do we do? And here we find ourselves in chapter 4, therefore in the practical working out of the doctrines that Paul has discussed and labored over for three chapters. He has in essence laid out what the church's mission is in Christ Jesus. He's explained what the church should look like and what that means for what it means to be a member of the body. Believe it or not, we cannot define what it is to be a member of Christ's body on our own. In the same way we would not seek to define what it is to be a pastor in our own volition, so also we understand what it means to be a member of Christ's body according to scripture. So, let us go back just a little bit to figure out why Paul in verse 15 says rather of what does he speak? So we read in uh, verses 11 through 14. As Paul says, And he, meaning Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children." tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let me summarize a little bit of what we just read. 
Paul tells us that Christ has given gifts to his people. Gifts to his church by the means of people. They are to be faithful and gifted men. And these men have a duty. Their duty is to equip the body for the ministry to one another and for the ministry to the world. Let us note here that Paul is very clear in his description of the way that a church ought to operate. It is the whole body, not merely the pastor nor the elders that is doing the ministry. The pastor and elders and teachers are called to equip the body for the ministry. But then he also tells us what is the end result. What results when the church follows in the proper manner of ministry? Ultimately, we are grown. We are equipped that we might minister well. We might minister well that we might become mature. That we might grow in Christ's likeness and be unified in the faith. So this then leads to our passage at hand. And this is why Paul starts with the word rather. And this then leads to why I've selected this text for our body to approach. Now during our time I'm going to seek ultimately to expound God's word. And I believe that we can draw approximately five points. From this text. And, and in this text, we will consider number one, the need to speak. Number two, what to speak. Number three, what, why, when, and how to speak. Number four, what happens when we speak. And number five, who must speak. Hopefully, you got that because we're not bringing it back. Verse 15, I'm kidding. Verse 15, we start. Rather, speaking. One of the very first calls of Paul to the believers in Jesus Christ in Ephesus, to this description of now what? Now that we know what is true in Christ Jesus, what is it that we are called to do as Christ's body unified? And he begins, rather, speaking. And therefore, we have our first point. We have the need to speak. Clearly, what Paul means is that we are to speak, but this is in contrast to something that he just said in verse 14. You see, in verse 14, he tells us that we are not to be those who are children. And the word that he uses for children here is very intentional. It's napios, and it can literally be translated, one who does not speak. It is an infant, one with no ability nor capability to communicate that which a human being ought to. And so this is in stark juxtaposition here to what we are called not to be, that we are to be those who speak. Here all Christians are called to be speakers. Those who do not talk are children. They are people, in the, in the context prior, that are thrown about by every wave of wind and teaching and doctrine. These are those with no discernment. Rather, they're like a fish that is blinded by worm lust, and thus it will chomp onto any teaching and hold it fast, not knowing the difference between sheep and wolf. We are, though, called to be inf not infants. Those who cannot talk but merely spend their days laying around in leisure, babbing, babbling meaninglessly. It's cute when they're tiny, but if it's to persist, it's a problem. 
So these types of people are those written of in Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14, when the author rebukes his audience for being infants. And he uses this same word. Rather than be those who are able to teach God's word as they ought to, he says that they are needing others to come and reteach the elementary basics of the faith. And rather, now we are called by Paul to be those who are to speak. And in doing so, what is it that happens? We are defended from that infantile disease known as spiritual gullibility. What is it when we are no longer yanked around by every wave and wind of doctrine? It is in the context of a body that speaks. We are guarded from being thrown about like a toddler trying to pick out one toy in that unending and awful Walmart toy aisle. Rather, Paul calls us to be those who speak. This is following right along with the rest of Scripture. We see in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, that we are to go and speak to our brothers who have sinned. We see in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, that we are to go and speak to our brothers or sisters caught or stuck in sin. We see in James 5, 19 through 20, that we are called to go and restore brothers from wandering in order to save their souls. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, that we are told of the various ways to speak to those in the body through rebuke, encouragement, and help in teaching. We see in 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 26, that for those who wish to be a servant of the Lord, they are called to be those who frequently speak to the enemies of the faith. And so here Paul calls us along with the rest of scripture that we are to be those who speak. Which leads us to the what. Point number two, what are we to speak? If you are interested, I will be throwing citations out in order to save your hands. If you miss a citation of scripture and would like it, email me and I will send you literally a list of every single citation that I will speak. Okay? Deal? Enough bobs. All right. Point number two, what to speak. What does Paul have in mind here? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, translates this word very helpfully. He translates this word of speaking the truth. And the word that he uses for truth is very odd. It's actually only used one other time in the New Testament. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones translated a little bit more closely to truthing. You see, it does mean to speak truth, and yet it has with it the um, essential context of actually living according to the truth that's spoken. It's speaking truth with such a life that testifies to the validity of that which is preached. It's used in Galatians 4.16 when Paul says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth or by truthing, living according to that which I've already told you? And so what Paul here is calling the body of Christ to do is that we are to be those who speak truth. It is, for, it is meaning that we are to be those who are so filled, so enamored by God's word that when we speak, what flows from our lips is merely the word of God. It's said of John Bunyan, and I believe this is our, actually the call for every one of us. It was said of John Bunyan, if you were to cut him, he would bleed Bible. What an honorable thing to be said. As a sponge, when squeezed, releases all the water that fills it, so is it to be with the word of God to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is ultimately 
that we are to be the people who gather wisdom, not from varying areas. That we are to speak in accordance to one source. And that source is what Christ Jesus had in mind when in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What Paul has in mind here when he says that we are to speak the truth is that we are to speak according to God's transforming word. It is meant to be our authority in all of our speech and life. It is to be God's word alone that is truth. Fair enough, but Paul continues. Verse 15 goes on. Rather, speaking the truth in love. And this brings us to our third point. We are to understand when to speak, why to speak, and how to speak. In essence, what is love? So Paul has told us that we are to be those who speak, not as infants who lay in Babel, but rather those who speak, and not simply those who speak in pouring out our own wisdom, but rather we are to be assigned to a certain authority, and that is the truth of God's word revealed. And yet, my stomach doesn't drop until I get here. Because this is where the rub of Paul's command can hit two different struggles. Often, we struggle in two different ways to not follow this call. Two different ways that we can lack love when we are speaking truth. The first is when we lack love in the way we speak on the basis of our message. The second is when we lack love in our speech on the basis of our method. We can get both the message and the method wrong and both point to the fact that we are in need of more love. So here's what I mean. When we lack, spe- uh, lack love in our speech based on our message, we are as those in 1 Kings 12, 1 through 15. Here we have Rehoboam, As he is seeking to understand how to lead his people well, he seeks out the wisdom of the elders of Israel. And they come to him and they seek to give him advice and wisdom according to the question, what saith the Lord? Well, Rehoboam doesn't like that. And so he goes over and asks his frat bros what they think. And when his frat brothers get together, those boys that he was raised up with, they gave counsel according to what sounded like it would work. What was the pragmatic response that anyone with somewhat common of sense might be able to come up with? And guess who he ended up going with? And thus the fall and divide of the kingdom. His counselors lacked love. Why? It was not because they wished him harm. It was not because they wished him failure. Rather, they did not point him towards that which was truly loving. Their sights were not set on what saith the Lord. Their sights were set on what will please me. And therefore, we follow in that same vein quite often. This is how we can lack love in our message. We may also lack speaking love in our message by electing to not give good counsel out of fear or concern for what a person might think 
of or do to us. I am often a man that's tempted not to withhold speech to a, a stranger. Rather, that's actually quite easy for me to share the gospel with a stranger because I will not know tomorrow what you think of me. Oh, but my wife is the recipient of much sin. When my wife be struggling with either suffering or sin, it is inherent that my first response will be struggle. Because often I will value lack of conflict or my own happiness, and thus I will restrain my tongue from pouring out good and godly counsel. And thus I become like the man that Paul warns against in Galatians 1.10 when he says that if I were to speak for the pleasure of men, I no longer speak to honor Christ. I have become the man that Jude rages against in Jude verses 8 through 25. Out of my own selfish ambition, I would disobey God's call on my life to be a husband who is meant to pour the washing of the water of the word over my wife. And why would I do this? It is not out of love for her. It is a lack of love for her. And an overabundance of love for myself, my comfort. We see the call of a husband in Matthew 22, 34 through 40. In Philippians 2, 3 through 4. In Ephesians 5, 26. We see this failure constantly in churches. We, vent, we, uh, we venture as churches further and further from the preaching of the word of God and instead replace our bodies gathering with ecumenical entertainment, seeker-friendly programs, moralistic teaching, and positive feel-good encouragement. And as we do that, we are often aware that this is happening and we rightly pull away from that. And yet I fear that though that is true and we ought to guard against that, we often are blinded to the enemy's schemes. Because while, for the most part, we watch stages venture away and we would understand that they are wrong for doing so, nonetheless, the stages of our hearts, our homes, and our social lives are filled with the embrace of godless philosophies. And rather, we would withhold speech or speak such things that if it were to be preached in a pulpit, we would throw rocks. Often, we are blinded to the seriousness of what it is to be called the body of Christ and what our duty is in response. The only truly loving counsel, the message that is truly loving, is to actually share with someone the message revealed by God in His Word as fitting for their situation a lack of truth, a lack of God's authoritative word is never truly loving. Just as it is a grievous offense to withhold a good and godly gift of sweet discipline to children, according to Proverbs thirteen twenty four, so it is egregious offense to spare hurt feelings by withholding God's word from one in desperate need of it. As a surgeon would be an awful surgeon if he were too afraid to hurt the patient with his knife. Rather, he ought to recognize that the patient's life hangs upon the insertion of his blade. We are to be a people who speak. We are to be a people who speak the truth. And we cannot lack it in our message. 
The second way our speech can lack love is when our speech lacks love in its method. What does it mean for us to speak truth in love? It does mean that our message is truly loving, but it also means that our method is truly loving. That is, truth given with no love at all is indeed not God-honoring truth. We can see this in the motivation for our speech, the timing of our speech, and the expression of our speech. Rather than assume that I'm correct, let's go to the word of God. You see, we are called to speak, speak the truth in love, and it to a degree will depend on my motivation. We see Paul commenting on this as he describes, just in verses prior, what is the purpose for which we are to speak truth in love? I am called to speak truth in order to help the body grow. We are not to be the people who speak truth in love so that I can let that sinner know what they have done offending me. I am not to speak the truth in love because I'm called to be honest and so I get a free pass to say whatever I want that crosses my gray matter. I am not called to speak the truth in love just on the basis of how I feel in the moment. Rather, I am to be motivated out of a love and a pure pursuit for the good of another soul. So I am to bear God's word for the purpose of their good. According to verses 13 and 14, It does not matter the truth I speak. If I speak it out of anger, selfish ambition, arrogance, it may be true, and yet I have dishonored the Lord and misrepresented him as one who speaks unlovingly to one that he loves greatly. I have borne the image of Jonah who proclaimed the wrath of God to sinners and yet cursed the Lord when they repented because he proclaimed out of hatred what was meant to be proclaimed by a forgiven sinner desperate to pass on the blessing in Jonah 3 through 4. You can see this. We have the message of reconciliation, and thus we are called out of love to long to see the world reconciled. And yet, I am far quicker to speak the truth when it cuts like a dagger. Rather than when it is needed as a medicine for cure. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What does he mean? I may speak truth, but out of a godless motivation, I am as wise and useful as banging pieces of metal, which makes a great big noise, but I'm nothing but a pain in the ear to those nearby. If then I have a poor motivation, does that mean I'm free? I don't have to actually speak. No, my friends, it means that we are called to obey our Lord God and run in repentance to remove the log from our own eye that we might be readily prepared to remove the splinter from our brother and sisters in Christ, according to Matthew 7, 1 through 5. We see Paul comment not only on our motivation, but on the timing of our speech. Here in just a few verses beyond the section of Scripture we're in, he says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul here does not intend for the church to be a group of theology sharks who are just swimming about gnashing their teeth at every opportunity. There are times where I'll speak to someone and they're so intent on correcting my theology that I'd rather just set them in front of a mirror and say, would you like to have a conversation with him? 
Because they don't want to hear from me, they merely want to correct at every turn. Therefore, when am I supposed to speak the truth in love? When it is lovingly fit to give grace to those who hear. Now I encourage those of us who would take this as an opportunity again to remain silent. Let's make sure that we pay attention to the context of chapter 5 verses 15 through 21. Paul goes on and he explains that in encouragement that we are called to be walking wisely. Making the best use of our time. Why? Because the days are evil. And then he ends that section by explaining how that affects our speech to one another. Just as ships are to sail, guided by the same lighthouse, and yet we will need to steer according to their various directions, so it is that all sinners need the word of God spoken and applied in their particular context. So we see it in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 when Paul says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Speaking the truth in love does not always mean correction. At times it means encouragement. At times it means help. And so we see even Christ himself. He did not counsel all people the same. Rather, he spoke God's word as fitting the occasion. To Peter, to Peter he spoke a harsh and loving rebuke in Matthew 16, verses 22 through 23. We see to the woman of the city that he spoke in tender encouragement, love, and forgiveness in Luke 7, 36 through 50. To the rich young ruler... He spoke in such a manner to give very specific, pointed call to repentance out of a broken-hearted solemnity in Matthew 19, 16 through 22. Paul spoke both in sweetness and encouragement to the Thessalonians and harsh rebuke to the brothers in Galatia. And so we are to speak the truth in love. And what is it when it is loving? It is when we are motivated by a proper motivation. And thus we will speak in a manner that will fit the situation. But we must ask ourselves a little bit, is there anything in general that we can know that will be prevalent in every single situation? Is there sort of a litmus test that I could run that which I'm called to speak through, that I might know that it is wise and proper counsel, to which I say there are a ton of those in Scripture. But there's one that I want to pay our uh, most attention to today. What litmus test could we have where we could learn what it is to be truly loving in our speech? And that is when Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 tells us exactly what it is to be love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Too many marriages are filled with that verse. Sorry, pardon. Too many weddings are filled with that verse and not enough marriages. What does it mean to proclaim the truth in love? I am to proclaim the truth with long-suffering in patience, not in flustered aggression or passionate fury. I am to proclaim truth in gentleness and kindness. I am to proclaim truth out of selfless and humble care for others and the good of their souls. I am to proclaim truth not arrogantly, assuming that I know all that is needed to know about the situation. 
nor in blatant and matter-of-fact ways that are rudeness, merely pretending to be truthfulness. I am to proclaim truth, not insisting upon my own way, but rather persisting in a ministry of God's infallible word. I am to proclaim, proclaim truth in response, not to irritation and resentment, rather out of an understanding of what it is to be a sinner caught in sin. I am to proclaim truth out of brokenheartedness over both my sin and the sin of my brother. I am to proclaim truth not as a Pharisee to heap burden on the shoulders of my brother, but rather to bear up underneath of them to help them in their walk with the Lord. I am to proclaim truth in hopeful anticipation of their acceptance and submission to the word. I am to proclaim truth enduring the wicked reviling of the world out of a longing that they would be reconciled to my one and only treasure, Christ. I would like to give you an example, I find those helpful, of what it is to speak truth and love. It is one I came across last week and is penned by a theologian named Archibald Hodge. What a name. He penned this when he was 10 years old. And at 10 years old, he was moved so sufficiently that along with the help of his sister, he decided to write a letter to preach the gospel to those in Sri Lanka and send this letter along with a bit of money, along with James R. Eckerd, to the people of Sri Lanka. And here is what Archibald Hodge penned. Dear heathen, good intro. Dear heathen, the Lord Jesus Christ hath promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth will be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. And if this was a promise made by a being who cannot lie, why do you not help it to come sooner by reading the Bible and attending to the words of your teachers and loving God and by renouncing your idols, take Christianity into your temples? And soon there will be not a nation, no, not a space of ground as far as a footstep that will be in want for a missionary. My sister and myself have, by small self-denials, procured two dollars, which are enclosed in this letter, to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. Archibald Alexander Hodge and Mary Elizabeth Hodge, friends of the heathen. What a heart. Oh, that I would have had a heart like that or still could today. What odor would cease from the world were we to close our mouths from speaking falsehood and from speaking unloving truth? What a sweet aroma would fill the lungs of all we come across were our words to be seasoned out of truth in love. What difference would our church experience were we to speak the truth in love? Which leads... To point four, what happens? When we do this, what happens? Verse 15 goes on. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What happens? What's the purpose of this speaking up in love? I've already mentioned it before, so I won't belabor it, but we are to grow up. It is that we might grow up in Christ. One commentator puts it this way. The primary goal of the ministry of the church is to build up the body of Christ so that every member attains to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal is Christ-likeness. That's the mission here. 
Here we come to the conclusion at the end of this section where Paul has been writing about what it means for Christ to equip the body with these gifts. We find out in verse 12 what these gifts of faithful men are to do. Verse 13 and 14 show us the goal that we might grow in a knowledge of Christ and our ability to more clearly bear his image and point the lost to his beauty. It's as if 2 Corinthians 2.16 is correct, that we might be the aroma that leads to life for those who are being rescued. We are to become mature, not as babies, who bear the form of man, but are unable to live. Unable to live as man. Rather, to be, we are to be raised up to live as the image bearers of Christ here on earth. The goal of the church is not to go therefore and create converts. The goal of church, therefore, is not to make an appeal to the flesh and passions of man in hopes that they'll take note. The goal of the church is not to make kids behave better. It's not even to bait and switch those in the world with fun and games that they might stick around. Christ did not come to be an addition to a me-centered and me-gold life. He came to put me in the grave that I might rise with him and live for him in everything. We see the missions of, mission of the church according to Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Colossians 3, 3 through 4. Galatians 2, 20. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. And the summary of these passages is, the goal of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, whose lives are crucified with him, and whose life is now owned entirely by Christ, to be grown in his image as they go out on mission to cry out to the broken world, be reconciled to God. What happens when the church is speaking truth and love? We grow up. We bear the image of Christ. And whose job is this? Whose job is it to speak truth in love? Our point five comes from verse 16. Point five is who is to speak? Verse 16 says this From whom? The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here Paul tells us that it is Jesus Christ who makes the growth. He uses the obedience and faithfulness of every member of his body to do so. Christ is the head, and he moves and uses the body. Who is it that has the ministry of speaking truth and love? Every joint, every member of the body. I've heard it said this way, the church speaking the truth in love to one another in God's description is an every member ministry. We all, every one of us has the command to be a mouthpiece of God's word to speak the truth in love. To build up the body. This is what makes the body grow. When those who are in Christ Jesus. Speak the word of truth. In both speech and life to one another. It is when the body is equipped by pastors and evangelists. To do the work of the ministry. This has huge implications. And so I would like to walk through four 
application points. Number one, church growth. Not meaning merely church growth numerically, for that does not seem to be Paul's focus here at all. Rather, this is working in contradiction to those who are in verses 13 and 14 being thrown about. Paul's focus of church growth is not numbers. Paul's focus of church growth is maturity. Church growth is the responsibility of every single member through the power of Christ. It is clearly in verse 16, from the whole body joined and held together. From whom, pardon, the whole body is joined and held together. It is Christ who is our power. Christ who is our substance. And yet, he uses the means of the body. It is every part that when it is working properly, the body grows. This means that we are all called to a mission for those in this body. Did you know that you have a responsibility to those in this church? That your mission with this body of believers is to be equipped so that you can go and do the work of the ministry. That the sanctification of those in this body is actually something that God has put you here to influence. The growth in the image of God of those here in this body is to be a concern and a responsibility to you. It's not just the pastors that are to do the ministry. According to scripture. That's the role of every member of the body. And it is when each part is working properly that the body grows in maturity and therefore it grows in its witness to the world. Number two, speaking the truth in love is the responsibility of every single member. Don't you wish that wasn't there? When we see one of our members hurting, do you realize it's your duty to go minister to them? Do you realize that when you watch a brother in Christ neglect his family duties before the Lord, that it's your responsibility to go and speak truth in love with both warning and exhortation? Do you realize that when one is sick, it's your duty to go and be with them? Do you realize that when a teenager is struggling, it's the responsibility upon you to go and help them? When a marriage is crumbling, do you understand that it is you that is meant to surround them in help, encouragement, love, rebuke, and patience, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.14? Is it the duty of the outside world, the professional, to try and help the member of Jesus Christ? It's to our folly and shame, if so. Rather, the Bible puts that responsibility directly upon the body to minister to that soul. Are we to ship those out with problems for others to help and minister and care for? Are we to wait for another to go and deal with the situation? God's word says the responsibility falls upon me, not as pastor, as member. And I as pastor and to equip you to move. Who is to greet the visitor? Who is to visit the sick? Who is to cry with the grieving? Who is to counsel the soul of those who need help? It is us all. I heard it beautifully said this way. When the toe is stubbed, the hand reaches. 
The knee draws the toe nearer that the fingers might clasp it, that the palms might press. The throat groans, the face tightens, the nerves signal, we are one body. And we are responsible to speak truth in love to one another. And that duty belongs to every member, regardless of gifting. For we are all to be those who speak. Point number three. Every member is to be equipped to speak the truth in love. I remember it very well. A woman approached me for the first time and asked me to meet with her son. Her son was struggling with self-harm and cutting. And the mother looked at me and she said, my husband and I, we have no idea how to help him or what to do. And immediately the thought crossed my mind, and do you think I do? I had no idea what to do either. And yet immediately after that came to mind the words of a minister to my soul, where he often said, God has given us all that we need to be fully equipped for every good work in the word of God. I would reckon that helping those with the very struggles that God writes of in his word would count as a good work. Not knowing what to say is not an excuse, Daland. It's just proof that you have not yet done what he expects you to do and what he fully supplies you for. We are called to minister. And not knowing how is not an excuse to disobey. Rather, it's a call to action. When I do not know how to drive, I don't say, well, I learned to drive. This is why I'm utterly grateful for those of you who are pursuing certification in biblical counseling. For those who are willing to answer the call to be equipped to minister to the souls of those that God would bring you. Biblical counseling certification is not something that super specialized people should do. It is a very basic way of preparing for what God has called all of us to do. Which leads me to point number four. I think it very important to both encourage and to warn. We are all counselors. Are you a mother? Happy Mother's Day. But are you a mother? Are you a father? A grandparent? Are you a friend? A boss? A co-worker? Are you a teacher? An employee? An advisor? Are you a spouse? Are you a brother? Are you a sister? Are you an accountability buddy? Are you a teammate? You are a counselor. Are you a person with opinions that you share? You are a counselor. Do you grant advice? You are a counselor. Do you ask questions for someone to consider? You are a counselor. Do you offer someone critique? You are a counselor. Do you meet for fellowship? You are a counselor. Do you console those who are hurting? You are a counselor. Do you rebuke those who anger you? You are a counselor. Do you live and have your being within earshot of another human soul? You are a counselor. Do you live within the eyesight of others that might perhaps watch you? You are a counselor. A sister in Christ once told me, I could not do what you do. To which I had to reply, you maybe can't say what I would say simply because you have not yet been equipped to. But sister, trust me, you already do what I do. People of God, we are to be those who speak because we already are but we are called to be those who speak the truth in love you're already counselors the question is what kind of counselor are you the question is what authority 
do you gather your wisdom from? Do you do it according to the wisdom of God's word? The wisdom of the world? The wisdom of Daland? We're held accountable for every word that crosses our lips according to Matthew 12, 36. And we will give an account for the advice we give, for the ways we encourage others by both word and deed. We are made by God into one body, and what we speak and the manner in which we speak to others has a true and real impact. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to be those who speak. We are called to be those who work properly to make the body grow. We are those who are to be built and building up in love. Every one of us is called to speak the truth in love that the body might grow up being joined and held together by every joint that it might be built up in love. Let's pray. Father God, your word is perfect. Your word is beautiful. Your word is powerful. Your word is overaboundingly sufficient. Lord, you knew that we would struggle, thus you gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. You gave us the gifts of the pastors and teachers, evangelists, to build up and equip the body for the good of the ministry. Lord, you gave us your word, which is able to change our souls. Father God, I pray that you would call us as Rocky Point Baptist Church to be those who speak the truth in love. And might your word come true when you say they will know you are mine by how you love one another. Father God, might we be the aroma of life to those who are perishing. Lord, might we draw the world simply because we bear your image and you are utter beauty. Father God, might you equip us all through your Holy Spirit, your word, and as we join together under your word, equip us as we seek to go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them. Lord, might we be your body, and might we work together that the body would grow. We pray all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.